I'm excited to be here at the Brooklyn Public Library. I am a Brooklyn girl, born and raised. Um, yeah, absolutely, Brooklyn's in the house. Um, and went to the Brooklyn Public Library as I was growing up, so it's very special for me to be here. And I'm so excited that we are hosting, for Opinion Has It, our very first live podcast um, with these two exceptional individuals. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Americans head to the polls in November to elect a president. As usual, the economy looms large for most voters. Job creation, growth, and prosperity are top of mind. So, too, is inequality. Income and wealth inequality continue to widen in America, as do regional disparities. The middle class is rapidly shrinking, and America's vaunted social mobility is now overwhelmingly downward. Discontent among voters, particularly in America's Rust Belt and Midwest, rallied behind Donald Trump's promise to, quote-unquote, make America great again in 2016. In an effort to appeal to those voters and unseat Trump, the candidates for the 2020 Democratic primary have all stepped forward with proposals to close the gap between the rich and the poor. Can they work? That is the question our next guests address. Joseph Stiglitz is a professor of economics at Columbia University. He is also the winner of the 2001 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences and a monthly commentator for Project Syndicate. Anand Girdardas is an editor-at-large at Time magazine and the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. I sat down with them in a live recording at the Brooklyn Public Library. Joe, you have written, um, you've examined inequality in both the United States and around the world. So if it's possible in a nutshell, how did the world's richest and most innovative country become among the most unequal? It is the most unequal uh, of all the advanced countries, and we do everything better, bigger and better than other countries, and we do inequality better. We are number one. We're yeah. truly number one. We're truly number one. <laughs> Actually, we also, surprisingly, are also at the bottom in terms of equality of opportunity. So that American dream in terms of the way social scientists talk about it, uh, the life prospects of a young American are more dependent on the income and education of his parents than in almost any of the other advanced countries. Well, how did we get here? Well, uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, we worked at it very hard. Basically, over the last uh, 40 years, I, I think the defining moment was around 1980, I and mean, some of you may remember what happened around then. It, it was supply-side economics and a whole set of doctrines that somehow lowering taxes on the very richest, lowering taxes at the top, and allowing uh, unbridled financialization, stripping away regulation, the idea was that, yes, it would increase inequality, but the economy would grow so much that everybody would be better off. Well, the one part of that promise that was delivered was the increase in inequality. The growth of the economy actually went down by about a third. And part of that deregulation was stripping, uh, weakening antitrust competition laws. So we have more monopolies. It also involved uh, weakening uh, labor unions, uh, collective bargaining. So you had monopoly power allowing corporations to raise prices. You have unions being weakened so that wages go down. You have reforms in corporate governance 
where you say the corporations only serve their shareholders, and it was a sin not to do that, that meant uh, the corporations took a very narrow view uh, of their role, and that meant mainly enriching the CEOs and the top management. So there were a number of other, uh, th these forces and a number of other things like globalization, all of which set the stage for this increase of inequality. One of the things I, I emphasize, and we began by saying America has more inequality than any other country, the underlying economic forces that a lot of people emphasize, they're at play in all of the other countries. They're at play in Western Europe. So the question that you ask is really the key question. It isn't just a matter of economics. It's really a result of our politics and the way that the politics have worked out uh, in the last 40 years. Anand, Joe just talked about how the rich have gotten richer and... I prefer the term plutes, but... You know, <laughs> I, I, other, other than that, I have no problem with anything you said. Well, in your, in your book, you call them the winners, the people who have concentrated wealth and power. In your book, you argue that th those winners are among the most socially concerned elites in history. So what's the disconnect? So if you start with the story that Joe just told, which is absolutely the right story, I think where that story leads you, maybe not 40 years in, but even starting 20 years into that story, it works for a little bit, right? Because all these, the results of these policies do not become clear for some time, and causality is not clear. But after some amount of time, a couple things start to happen. The government starts to have less money than it would have if you hadn't done those things, obvious. Number two, a bunch of private companies and investors start to make more money than they would have made if you hadn't done those things. Number three, crucially, a bunch of social problems start to multiply because of number one and number two, because the government can do less to protect people, uh, remediate things, also because of the way in which those employers have been freed to employ people, et cetera. And so now social problems are multiplying. Government is less capable despite the problems being increased. And what is the, the third part of that unholy trinity? Now the same wealthy and powerful people, the same exact people who fought for this to become the case, go out the door and come in a side door and are like, oh my gosh, this is such a shame. This is a shameful state of affairs. You got your social problems, hurts my heart. You got your government that can't do anything. What a shame, government not up to the task. Boo, government. But you know what? America's been good to me. I'm sure every donor to this library, America's been so good to me. <laughs> and so I would like to donate a fraction of the money I made hurting people to a fraction of those people. And I would like my name in font 12,000 size. <laughs> and what it has done, if you take the first story that Joe told and then the second story I'm telling is, I think his story alone, if that had all that had happened, at some point it would have exploded, right? I think they bought themselves a pretty substantial period of years. We don't know how many. Part of me suspects maybe this actually might be the end of the 40-year period. Um, I think there's a more realistic possibility in two candidates in this year that 
you could see the beginning of the end of this period. But they bought themselves this kind of cryogenic life extension <laughs> by brilliantly having the people most responsible for the slaughter of the American dream rebrand themselves as the solution, as the saviors. I mean, when arsonists become firefighters, A, it is ingenious on their part, because no one thinks to suspect the firefighter. <laughs> but two, they're probably not very good at firefighting, because they're arsonists. Okay, well, the fire, I mean, one of the things that both of you have argued is that don't boo the government. The government should actually have more leeway in developing social safety net programs and developing a more productive and progressive economy. But when you take a look at the past 40 years, the economy has been very much defined by neoliberalism and what Ronald Reagan christened as, you know, trickle-down economics. And it's something that Wall Street and hedge fund managers and investors have really embraced. How can we actually overthrow it? If, if you just took the economic facts we've talked about tonight, there's no way. And you just said, you know, if you design America so that like 3% of people benefit from the future, would that be sustainable? Of course it would not. So in a country where everyone votes, has the right to vote, why is it not working? Well, it's not working because what the 3% of people do is invent and spread, and this is true in any era of any culture, they invent a culture, a set of talking points, a set of values that explain why they are on top, that explain the naturalness of the order, right? And I think it's very hard to see this about your own age. If you watch Downton Abbey, right, or any kind of upstairs, downstairs show from some other country that you don't feel emotionally attached to, It's so obvious. There's two things that are obvious about that show. A, they are all living in a story that is insane. And the story is the people up there deserve to be up there, inherited it, it's their job to steward the land, that the people down there or on the edges of the farm deserve nothing, shouldn't own anything, should have no land, should have no rights. That's, so that's an insane distribution of power. History's full of insane distributions of power, that's one of them. The second thing that's crazy about it is, Everyone in the show believes the truth of the story. And this is what should sober us, because we're doing this too about some other story right now. And it's very hard to see it in your own age. And what they, Carson the butler believes in the naturalness of his being downstairs with the same ferocity that the people upstairs believe in them being upstairs. And so the question, the, the humbling question we should all ask in any age is, what are those stories of my own time? And I think if I have to summarize in a sentence, it is the story that, the pe that we should free the richest and most powerful people to make money in whatever way they can and then trust them to solve the very problems they are still working to cause. So, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And, and there are a number of these myths like trickle-down economics that by trusting them, yes, the economy will grow, they'll do very well, but it all trickle down uh, to all of us. The idea that Government is the problem and not the solution. You know, what is the most important innovations that have transformed our society? The discovery of DNA, the internet, all these have been funded by the government. It was government entrepreneurship that led to these kinds of things, or at least government finance. And the story that has been told is that government is the problem and not the answer. What is quite remarkable is even after they've been shown 
not to be true, how long they persist. So supply-side economics, the idea that lowering taxes would lead to faster growth and would lead to everybody being better off. That was what was behind Reagan's 1981 tax bill, which he said would raise taxes even as he lowered rates from 70% of the top down to 35 Well, it didn't do that. The deficit really soared after that. That same idea was, was put forward in the tax bill that was talked about in uh, 2017. But what has happened in that process is actually we've moved into a new world where even though the evidence is so overwhelmingly against this, we were, were moved into a world where truth is no longer really the, uh, the salient variable. So I do some teaching at the School of Public Policy, and I sometimes joke, one of the things you have to learn is to name the bill the opposite of what it does. So if, you, if it's a, a managed trade agreement, you call it a free trade agreement. And if it's a tax increase for most Americans, you call it a tax cut. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. For less than $2 a week, not only can you help us continue to interview experts week after week, but also join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Visit project-syndicate.org to learn more. on the topic of taxes, because both of you have said one thing that needs to be done is reforming the tax, U.S. tax system to help redistribute wealth. And a lot of the nominees in the Democratic primary have proposed some reforms to that extent. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders in particular have proposed a wealth tax. What effect would a wealth tax actually have and how would it work? So let me, let me begin uh, a little bit, a uh, step back, which is when we talk about redistribution, really where the focus of discussion should begin is that the people at the top are not paying their fair share of taxes. I mean, it's really that simple. The recent research, uh, a couple of economists at Berkeley have pointed out that those at the top pay a lower tax rate than the bottom 50%. So it's not a redistribution from the, uh, the rich to the poor. We're actually having a world where, in terms of ec- economic ability to pay, it's the poor who are, re- in some sense, redistributing to the top. Because they have, are paying lower taxes, they're able to accumulate more and more and more, and that gives rise to your favorite word, the plutocracy. So in my mind, if you changed the tax structure and you made those who earn their uh, income by clipping coupons from capital, capital gains, pay the same 
tax rate, just the same tax rate as those who work for a living, you would get trillions dollars more in a 10-year period. Now, on the specific issue of a wealth tax, it's not that complicated. We, if you own property, you pay a property tax. Anybody who owns uh, stocks or bonds, uh, whenever you buy it or sell it, you have to report it. So we have data now on most assets. So it would actually not be that difficult. And remember, uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposal is basically focused on the billionaires. Now, you know, there aren't that many of them in the country that it is a massive problem of implementing. There's another tax on those with a uh, uh, small tax, 2% on those over 50 million. Though we have half an economics Nobel each on average. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, it, I'm going to give you more of a cultural answer. Um, I'm going to say three things that I think are obstructing the progress to doing something like that. Maybe the kind of myths that you talk about. So number one, I think there's a foundational question that all of us have to ask, which is, do you think of the plutocrats or the billionaires as people who just happen to have drifted up from among us, and that's why they're up there? Because of luck or good fortune or a great business idea? Or do you actually think that because of some of the things we've talked about, the rigging activities, the tax avoidance, the lobbying, this and that, that they are actually better understood as people who are up there because they are standing on our backs? If you think it's the former, then a wealth tax may be a more dubious proposition. If you are of the view that actually there are people whose wealth and power is actually coming at the expense, as I believe a lot of people, I think whether it's Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or others, then actually it is an end in itself, apart from the fair share issue, it is an end in itself to actually reduce their wealth and power. I actually believe the wealth and power of some number of people in this country is actually in itself, apart from the fair share issue, incompatible with a well-functioning democracy. Right. Let me just say, I, th I think that's really important. That the inequality, the wealth inequality, is an impediment to a well-functioning democracy. And you talk about systems of checks and balances. If you have too much wealth inequality, uh, no system of checks and balances is going to work. Uh, they're going to override it. I think we need to play a poker game with some of these rich people. Because what they say is, if you tax our wealth in particular... Here's a bunch of things that'll happen that are super dangerous for you. <laughs> We're not worried about ourselves. We're worried about you, right? This is economic concern trolling. So basically, <laughs> what, so what they say is, if you tax my wealth, I won't innovate as much as start companies. If you tax my wealth, I won't have as much to give back. Mark Zuckerberg says there won't be, the government will be the only public health investor, therefore you won't have diversity, which is the only kind of diversity Mark Zuckerberg's interested in, in philanthropic, <laughs> philanthropic funding of public health. You know, if you tax our wealth, we'll go to Singapore, and there'll be nobody left in New York, or there'll be nobody... And I want to play poker. I am so ready to play poker with all these guys, because I am a fucking patriot. And I actually think I live in a great country. And I actually think, although it's in a very, very, very bad situation right now, I actually think this country is good enough that I'm willing to play poker with any of these guys and say, really? You, where, where are you going to go? You don't want to be in this market? You don't want to sell to people here? Okay, that's fine. You don't, you don't want to incorporate? You don't want, you, don't, you don't want the Securities and Exchange Commission regulating your stocks, making sure no one's like stealing stuff from your brokers, not stealing from you? That's cool. 
Like, we, we've actually built up quite a nice society here. Shame if you didn't have access to it. Let's let them make their choices about whether they want to play. And it's totally cool. Like, if, if honestly, if Michael Bloomberg really feels, as he said, the wealth tax would be debilitating to America, he could just do full-time in Bermuda. And I would cry briefly, but not, not that long. Um, and, the, and the final point I'll just say in a, in, a, in a sentence or two is, I think to justify things like the wealth tax, we need to make a militant case for government that is the equal and opposite of the anti-government case, which has not happened. The people who are against government are really good at their job. And the people who are for government are not as good at the sport. Tell me which rich person or corporation does more for the elderly than Social Security every year. Who, who has done more for women than suffrage did? Wh which, which Silicon Valley startup or <laughs> philanthropist has done more for African Americans than the civil rights movement? We need to flip the script and have these people justifying their existence in this society and not have government which does so much, all imperfect as it is, DMV-ish as it sometimes can be. <laughs> the government does more to create a baseline of prosperity and safety in this country every day so that we don't have to think about it than any of these people. So you want to flip the, so you want to flip the script and there are candidates in, in the Democratic race that agree with you. Um, that they're the progressive. It's not easy, but you know. Yeah, I mean, there are. And basically what they're saying is we need a revolution. We need to really just completely transform the institutions of government. But then there are candidates in the Democratic race who are moderate and saying, well, maybe we can tweak the institutions, not rock the boat. And my question to both of you is, is it better to revolutionize and completely upend the system or is it better to actually tweak it? I think we've had 25 years of trying to tweak it, and uh, it hasn't come out very well. We've been tweaked. We, yeah. so, so I don't think tweaking is going to work. But it's also not a revolution. Let, let, let me say that the idea that it should be a universal right to access to health care is not really a revolution. It's only a revolution in America. You shouldn't have voter suppression. You know, that's not a revolution. Uh, Joe, go slow, go slow. No voter suppression? I mean, come on, you communist? Uh, or the idea that everybody should be able to have an education up to their ability without graduating from college with tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And, you know, other countries have figured out how to do this. So most of these ideas are not what I would call revolutionary. They're just trying to bring America into the 21st century. I agree, this, none of this stuff's revolutionary. But it is transformative of our society in many ways, precisely because we've failed to do so much stuff that we should have done. I think what I have not seen Sanders or Warren do in a way that I would love is to figure out how to market these policies, separate from what the policies are, which are great, in a way that really expands beyond the justice squad, right? that expands beyond the people who were for this stuff before you'd even proposed it. There are those people, and I think they've actually unearthed more of them than we thought there were, but it's not everybody. The holdouts are not all crazy Koch brother disciples. There's a lot of reasonable people who feel a little bit scared and feel like they just wanna you know, 
go under Amy Klobuchar's wing. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I think for Sanders and Warren right now need to, in a way that I have not seen, take these policies and stop talking about them in only the language of policy or of justice or of inequity, but also in two other languages that are deeply American languages, in some ways more languages of the right than the left, language of patriotism and of personal transformation. And I'll just say a second about each. Right now, the view, the conventional wisdom is a health policy of leaving some of your fellow citizens to die on the street because they missed an enrollment deadline. That somehow is the American thing right now. And covering everybody is somehow the vaguely French thing. <laughs> to take full responsibility in politics, I think you gotta say like, the people pushing these ideas are not good enough at politics if that is the distribution of sentiment right now. And I think if you, tr and I haven't heard this speech from either Sanders or Warren yet, to be totally honest. I'm, I'm talking about like, what's the Gettysburg Address on Medicare for all, because it's gonna take that, right? And I think it's starting to get to, we are the country that in X, Y, Z, in these wars, in this situation, and that's it, in the depression, and the, we're the country that makes the impossible possible. We're the country that has each other's back. Now, it may not be true, but we can talk about it. Um, <laughs> but there's gotta be a way to make people feel goosebumps when they think of Medicare for all, not feel terror in their hearts. And I don't see anybody doing that, which is good news because it means there's something still they can do. And second, personal transformation. When you're in the grocery store, those magazines right at the end trying to you know, abuse your time and make you, you know, distract you into buying them, what do they all say? Do this one thing, lose 10 pounds. Do this other thing, better marriage. Do this other thing, fix your sex life. Okay, so it's a little cheap, a little tacky, very neoliberal, but it's telling you something about the minds of people. So pay attention to that. People like to know their own life will get better in some measurable way, right? Again, I do not see Bernie or Elizabeth in a way that would really work, say, if we do Medicare for all, in addition to you having health coverage, your marriage will be a lot more fun when you're not a stress pot, <laughs> which is actually a documented fact. You know, I think if you think about student debt, wiping out student debt, so, Warren came out with this plan, I and mean, it's a revolutionary plan. But like, have you really played out for people the way the right does on their wall thing? Like, no one has told the story of how different people's lives would be, how different their psychologies would be, right? What businesses would you start if you didn't have that ball and chain? What books would you read to your kid if working one job became adequate to paying your bills? There's a failure to bring this home to people and to tickle the reptile brain, and that to me is what needs to happen between today and November. Yeah, I agree very much. And, and to bring it down to a, a little bit more mundane economics, many of these things would be very good for the economy. So the fact is that because, in part, we don't have access to health care for all, America's life expectancy is the only advanced country where life expectancy is going down. That's the, I'm not an economist, but that's the wrong direction, right? That's the wrong direction. Yeah. That's right. That, that, that one aspect of social protection is who do we turn to when we face an epidemic? The remarkable thing is that the CDC budget, the government agency who is responsible for contagious disease, was uh, attempted to be gutted by Trump just when we needed it most. And they actually gutted the very part of the department that was concerned about uh, diseases that arise 
uh, viruses that arise in animals and jump to humans. So it couldn't have been more wrongly targeted. The broader point is that these kinds of uh, uh, changes will actually make our economy stronger. Anand, you just were talking about narratives and the narratives that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are putting forward. And I have to say one of the narratives that they're putting forward, because we're not hearing these things, is Donald Trump. And so I want to talk about Mike Bloomberg. He- that was an excellent transition. I like that. <laughs> Th- thank you. Um, he, he's spending an unprecedented amount on the Democratic primary. And part of his gamble is that Democratic voters are going to put aside this question of inequality because the real fear is Donald Trump and that the the real focus needs to be defeating Donald Trump. Is he right? You don't fight the fire of corruption with the fire of corruption. And I think it's really worth saying very clearly, whether people agree with me or not, Michael Bloomberg's campaign itself is a corrupt act. It is a straightforward attempt to purchase the presidency of the United States through such a glut of ads. I mean, like, there's some amount of money that can buy anything, right? At some point, people hear about you enough, you get some percentage of those people to be for you, right? He is literally spending at a level where it's purely a name recognition play and and just flooding people so they don't remember anybody else because they've heard his name is the only name in their TV station. Second, on endorsements, he's getting all these mayors and nonprofit people who he's funded to give him endorsements. It, it's rare to see him endorsed by someone. That I, you know, I was just like a quick search, takes me like seven seconds, and it's like, yep, 2017, received $5 million, you know? And and I have to give Donald Trump, by comparison, credit for something. A lot of the bad and corrupt things Donald Trump does, he is not intelligent enough to fully understand. When you think about something like the Ukraine deal, kind of like, I'm not exonerating the guy, but I'm saying, like, there's a capacity issue which needs to be thrown into the stew. Michael Bloomberg knows fully well what he is doing. Michael Bloomberg understands the Constitution. Michael Bloomberg understands the founders' aversion to this kind of thing. And I think it is abominable. I think it's very important for everybody who's received money from him, who hopes to get money from him, who's been silent, to really be clear whether you like him or not as a person, this way of trying to become president is fraudulent and corrupt and needs to be shut down. Well, I have some sympathy with, with that view. I think you have to understand the context in which American politics has been corrupted, uh, including by Citizens United. And if you read uh, the case, you see the Supreme Court uh, in, in ruling said, if there were a whiff of corruption associated with money, we would have ruled otherwise. They were living on another planet from the planet we're living on. So... The, the fact is that we are living in a, a very flawed democracy where the taint of money is, I think, undermining our democracy. You know, that having been said, I think you also have to recognize that on many issues, Bloomberg has been really at the forefront. 
you know, on climate change, gun control, promoting healthy diet, you know, stopping the food companies from the epidemic of diabetes. So he's a very forward thinking Republican. You're right. (laughs) Well, there aren't very many of those left. Uh, Certainly there are. There's uh, aren't any in the uh, virtually any in the the Senate. So uh, the progressive candidates and Democratic Party, Sanders and and Warren have really, really succeeded in moving the national debate to the point where while uh, Bloomberg is not having the wealth tax of Elizabeth Warren, here you have somebody who, you know, who was a Republican, maybe still be in, in his heart. He is advocating significant increases in the taxation on the wealthy. You know, it, it is a transformative moment in our country where there is now a broad consensus that inequality is a problem and that we have to deal with that. The fact that we've moved this far gives me uh, hope about where we can go from here. Gentlemen, thank you. That was Joseph Stiglitz, a professor of economics at Columbia University and a monthly commentator for Project Syndicate, and Anand Girdardas, the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion has it is produced and edited by Kasha Brosalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham. 